So we are at the halfway point. Week three of our five-week study through First uh, Peter. Let me just recap a little bit of what we've seen in chapter one and so far in chapter two. Um, I will say our verse-by-verse approach uh, does get tested this week. The section we have is one that our lectionary usually drops out uh, because it requires some careful uh, discussion and thought. Uh, but we're going to attack the last half of chapter 2, first part of chapter 3 tonight. Uh, but here's where we've been. We're halfway through this study. We've got the Apostle Peter. He's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he is focused on faith under pressure, a hope in the midst of suffering. And we've said his main point is that God's people are misunderstood. And they're a minority group living under the rule of a different king in Asia Minor. Um, They're going to have pressure. They're going to eventually have persecution. And that will offer them a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. The first part of chapter 1 anchored these believers uh, living through turbulent times in the eternal salvation that is there through the work of Jesus Christ. Um, The basic idea is that pressure, persecution, even martyrdom, uh, likely like the martyrdom that Paul had just suffered, um, would never mean final defeat for those who God has caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an, he says, unshakable eternal inheritance. Um, This is completely safeguarded. And so you are completely safe in the kingdom of God uh, come what may. Doesn't mean that bad things won't come. It means that ultimately you are safe uh, in the kingdom of God. Um, last week we talked about how Peter develops our vocation, this call to holiness to be set apart, and our identity, part of God's new family. First uh, Peter 2.9 actually ties up a lot of those loose ends, a lot of those images as a summary statement. When he tells them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so tonight we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, through chapter 3, verse 7. The first part of the main section was about our salvation. Now we're going to start to think about how our social situation, even the pressure, um, even the persecution, could be an opportunity to show the generous love of Jesus. And uh, we have verses 11 and 12 as these kind of hinge verses in the entire book of 1 Peter. Uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, we have that. And then now he's going to go into this section about our public witness and then a section on our domestic witness. And what does it mean to follow Jesus in the public sphere? What does it mean to follow Jesus in our vocational work spheres? What's it mean to follow Jesus uh, in the home? In particular, if our culture, uh, that workplace or that vocational environment and the home um, are not all aligned in terms of the faith. What kind of opportunity uh, happens there and what kind of pressures come upon someone uh, living in that moment? Um, What's it mean to bear witness to our faith, whether it is the watching world or uh, those closest to us? Um, I mentioned, and I wasn't kidding, that most lectionaries leave this section out. It's one of those are like, hey, there's probably too much here uh, to work through on a Sunday because there's so many, um, I think, just cultural landmines here. Uh, There's ways in which uh, our reality can actually make it more difficult to understand and get the sense of what Peter is saying. A lot of times we try to take the scriptures and go, how do we apply them today? That's the arrow. How do we take the scriptures, apply them today? Um, Sometimes what we actually have to do is take today and work back to figure out, okay, what were they doing then? Um, And so we're going to take a careful look at their 
uh, social political situation. Um, the landmines, uh, politics, never controversial in church settings. Um, slavery uh, in the Roman Empire, um, the household, family, uh, wives, husbands, and uh, Peter says this idea that uh, husbands, your wives are, how does he put it? Uh, the weaker vessel. Um, and so if we don't get to that part on the weaker vessel, it was all the fellowship y'all did over soup. I take no responsibility for that. Um, but again, before we get lost, because we can get lost in some of those. Uh, each of those, we can do a whole uh, talk on. I want you to remind ourselves the broader context. Because in isolation, all of those are landmines. But Peter's not dealing with them in isolation. He's dealing with them in the context of these believers who are undergoing uh, pressure and uh, persecution, likely. Um, one thing I think that's uh, maybe a little tricky for us to think through um, is that those who have come to faith in the first century, particularly in Asia Minor, this area of the Roman Empire, um, their coming to faith uh, meant a step down and a step out. It meant that in many ways they would now be socially excluded uh, from power and wealth and status. Um, you can look up studies about honor and shame. Honor is huge in the first century. Your status, your reputation. And following Jesus did everything possible to step out and step away uh, from the mainstream of Roman society as it was known in those kind of imperial areas of Asia Minor. Um, it's likely that those who responded to the gospel, maybe they didn't have that much to lose socially. They were already kind of on the bottom of the rung. And so, hey, got nothing to lose. Let's follow Jesus. Uh, but it probably meant a double exclusion for them. Um, they, were not, they were not at the top of Roman society, and actually following Jesus put them a step out of it, uh, even more so. Um, we see here that after this breathtaking idea of chapter 2, the new holiness, the new people of God, um, Peter's taking stock. Okay, if all that is true, what's it mean? If this is what God has done, and this is who we are, how do we live now? And how do we live in the days and the troubles of uh, this day? How are we going to behave? What are our priorities? How do we live within this new world, this new creation that has begun and so right away, Peter will get down to business talking about holiness. Abstain from these passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's not a killjoy. He's like, the things that you're tempted to pursue um, are not good for you. And frankly, they're not good uh, for anyone. He tells them that they are sojourners and exiles. Uh, Peter, uh, maybe more than any other writer of the New Testament, draws on this exile imagery. Um, who knows what the exile was in the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah, Andres. The people got taken to, to Babylon. Um, yeah. And, and lived there. And yeah, so you have, you have God's people, and they have um, essentially, instead of following uh, the law, they have chased these other deities, and it says that judgment and discipline comes upon them. Um, and the people, God's people, are taken out of their land and put in a foreign land under foreign rulers. And they wrestle with, how do we sing God's songs in Babylon? Now that we are in this place where we're not in control, it's not where we want to be, how are we going to respond? Um, and more than any other, I think Peter grabs that imagery. Um, and he's essentially saying that you, who were probably Gentiles, through following Jesus, have actually undergone a form of exile. So that you now live in a land that is essentially foreign. Uh, the ruler over you is contrary to what you would desire. You're going to feel displaced until you're at home in the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of King Jesus. He says, uh, the first thing we, that is true about that is you've got to kind of live above board. You're noticeable because you're different. You're in exile. And how you live, uh, the watching world is going to judge the Christian faith 
based on it? Um, is it valid? Is there a distinction? Or are they just like the rest of us and pursue all the same worldly passions that uh, we pursue? Um, he reminds them that in their culture, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to indulge the passions of the flesh. Um, first century Rome was really good at that. And those colonies were really good at it. He says, you're going to be called to abstain. Um, and that might be hard. They're going to have to exercise self-control. They're going to have to have countercultural community where they're pursuing what's good instead of what's normal. Um, and he's going to talk to them about what that means for their Christian mission and their public life. Um, Scott McKnight is one of the guys I've been reading on First Peter. And he writes that while it is naive... Uh, to think that Christians will always be saved from social pressure or outright persecution because they live holy lives. It's not naive to think that such behavior will sometimes have the desired effect on their opponents so they will back off their foolish accusations and baseless persecutions. Here's what he's saying, is that if you're in a scenario um, where there is conflict and turbulence and tension between the way of following Jesus and the way of the world... (laughs) Um, there's likely to be a communication mess. People are going to misunderstand one another. They're going to talk past one another. They're going to slander and make accusations and make assumptions. And what Peter's saying is the first thing you need to do in that environment is make sure that you're above board. And in some cases, you're going to find that those who uh, might be opposed to you um, still can know, like, hey, they're, they're good for society. They're good for the community. Um, if I need something, I could come to them in a time of need, even if I'm not agreeing with them. Um, Peter's holding up the idea that pursuing holiness could be a route uh, to at least easing that pressure and beginning the introductory conversation that could lead uh, to mission and witness. Though, of course, later he's going to say, ah, I still might get really bad. Uh, be, be ready for that. Um, and I think that can be really uh, tricky. Um, I actually think... There's a lot of um, conversation in the church uh, broadly about how do we engage culture. Um, And sometimes there's really different approaches, even depending on kind of generationally, how old are we? Where did we grow up? Did we grow up in a more, you know, kind of Bible Belt environment? Did we grow up maybe, you know, we have some folks who grew up on the mission field, like a totally different environment. Um, I actually think we probably have a imagination for culture Um, that affects how we think about living out the faithfulness of the gospel. I think some of us have a we're settled in the land kind of a mindset. And so this is our land. We're in charge. Um, We're going to let folks know here's what's right, and we're going to live that out, and there's going to be continuity instead of friction with how that works. And some some folks grew up in that environment, and that's what normal feels like. Um, others, you may have grown up in an environment where you really felt the alien sojourning nature of your faith. That most of your friends maybe didn't follow Jesus. Or your particular culture, maybe it was not, there was more friction than continuity. You're probably naturally going to have more of an exile mindset. And so your thought is not, hey, we live here, here's how it works. You're thinking through, well, we're here, but we're under the kingdom of God, what does that look like to live in light of that? Um, Both of those are biblical categories. Um, And I actually think sometimes when we think about engaging culture, if we could start to have the conversation of how were we formed, what did we think was normal, and how does that make what we're living in today either harder or easier, that could be a route to understanding our approaches uh, to culture. Um, There's times where I'll talk actually with um, some older Christian leaders, and they'll say, I can't believe dot, dot, dot. I'm like, well, I can. We just, like, my age group just kind of grew up and started voting, man. <laughs> like, this, this has been normal to me since the mid-'80s. But it's just become apparent to, you know, normal more broadly in the last 5, 10, 15 years. That's not a statement on those leaders or on me. It's actually being honest with what are the social locations that we grow up in and what do we perceive as normal? What's visible? what's real to us in those scenarios. Um, And so uh, I think that's helpful for us. Um, Peter envisages, or his his teaching is for a time when there's a lot of turbulence, a lot of friction between the way of Jesus and the way of this world. 
And I think that's one of the reasons as things have been kind of chaotic, folks have said we can look to 1 Peter for some wisdom um, and some guidance and at least some reminders of uh, what it means to live in that scenario. Um, here's the big one uh, for them. Um, is Peter is going, the, the theme of this section is submission. <coughs> That's everybody's favorite word, right? <laughs> submission. He's going to lay out several different scenarios and arenas, and he's going to talk about submission for the sake of mission. Submission for the sake of mission is the thread that binds all the situations <coughs> together. Um, by the way, each of these scenarios assumes injustice, suffering, and even persecution. Peter is a realist and he's a missionary. He's not saying what's the perfect view of each of these areas of society. He's saying in light of reality, how do we respond faithfully? Uh, what does it look like to pursue submission for the sake of mission. And I, I would just say one thing for us as we kind of read through this and go, well, here's what I would do in that area. Um, maybe just realize some of the actual freedoms that we do have to voice dissent and gather and protest. I'm like, that wasn't around as an option. Um, the early church would have been, uh, everyone would have been on a cross. Um, and there were, there were certainly martyrs, but there was enough of a, you know, enough people kept going that the mission spread and grew. Um, just for, I think that's, that's helpful for us to go, hey, it's a different scenario. Um, there's different things in view. And so Peter is not approving of these things that are wrong. He is looking at how do we respond in a way that will be a gospel witness and in a way that lines up with the teachings and example of Jesus. I mean, think about chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43, 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think that is the ethical touchstone for this section, that countercultural way of Jesus. And so he's going to talk about submission for the sake of mission in all these areas of life, public politics, He's going to talk about household slavery, which we can talk about in a moment, and, and the domestic marriage uh, situation. So look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Feel a little uncomfortable? Just thinking that through? I mean, this guy, the emperor, really? Man, it's, it's shocking to me that uh, I think in the Roman Empire, maybe in particular, you see all of the uh, good and evil that government can accomplish. Uh, from the incredible public works they did, the transportation, um, the industry, the beauty, the advancement in the arts, to massive war, massive slavery. It's estimated most Roman cities, probably a third of the population uh, was owned by someone else. Um, and of course, for Christians, like Jesus. <laughs> like the, one of the best governmental systems the world has ever offered um, when their system worked perfectly, it put the Lord on a tree. And he's going to draw on that and draw from that. What do you do when the government is bad? How do you respond? Um, you know, I think for some people, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little, we're going to kind of just, you know, think around this, but... Um, 
we would just immediately say, if we disagree with something, then as good Americans, we can just not do it. Or we can push back. And there's some sense in which like, we can because of some of the rights of our society. Um, but there they didn't have much of that option. And you don't see Peter saying, pursue insubordination. Pursue chaos. Actually, um, given when I think this was written, um, within maybe a 10-year span, um, the Jewish leaders would choose insubordination. They would choose rebellion against Rome, and it left Jerusalem decimated. Um, the temple destroyed. Uh, like, there's a sense in which, like, you're just not going to win that head, head on. Um, you're, you're not going to beat Rome in that. As much as we would like to, you know, have like a gladiator movie or, you know, we, we like these things. We like the Spartacus kind of a, like that, I think that's deep in our American bones. Um, what it means to be an authentic person. Um, and that's why this call to submission for the sake of mission is so like, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know if I like that. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright says, serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than simply overthrowing one corrupt regime and replacing it by, well, as history shows, probably another. There's always pros and cons. There's not a perfect this side of the kingdom. He also says, Peter is not imagining for a moment that this submission will be easy. Or that the authorities will always and instantly respect the followers of Jesus. Far from it. He predicts that they will suffer, suffer greatly, suffer unjustly after the pattern of Jesus himself. So let's, let's talk a little more playfully about this. Um, so a few years ago, I had the opportunity to preach on Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. You see equal themes about submitting to our governing authorities. Um, and there were, it was actually in the middle of COVID, so there were all kinds of really interesting and really, uh, you know, difficult conversations. Faithful Christians were not on the same page. And there were questions about the role of government, submission, civil dis disobedience, all of these things. Um, and I don't want to re-litigate that conversation because, thank goodness, we don't have to. Um, but think about what's going on here. Um, Peter is talking about all right, submission for the sake of mission where we can, where it aligns with God's will, um, where it doesn't uh, force us to compromise. And Peter says if it forces you to compromise, there is a role of civil disobedience and then getting the consequences that come from it. So I want to do just a quick biblical theology of government so fast and so dangerously. Um, and actually, yeah, who here has seen Hamilton or is familiar with Hamilton? So that, of course, is King George. Um, and I only bring this up because early in that musical, did you know that there's an Anglican clergyman that appears? Samuel Seabury. Samuel Seabury stands up and he, he calls on the people. He says, heed not the rabble who scream revolution. They have not your interests at heart. Chaos and bloodshed are not a solution. Don't let them lead you astray. I pray the king shows you his mercy for shame, uh, for shame. And it's, it's made to be funny. Um, but it just, I think, reminded me when I saw it, like, man, even during the American Revolution, like, the church was wrestling with how do we answer these questions? Um, many Anglican clergymen were tarred and feathered <laughs> and ran out on a rail. Um, you know, what, is, what do we think about government? What is the role of government? Not just good government, but even bad government, because most governments are a mix of the two, right? Um, here is my, like, if I, if I just give you a one sentence on this, that government is God's necessary idea to promote order and restrain evil. It's his primary function, to promote order and restrain evil. And some of the best governments we've seen, they do that. They promote order and restrain evil. Even some of the really bad governments we've seen, to some extent, can promote a form of order and restrain evil. Um, you know, I, uh, 
This picture here is a guy named Andrew White. Um, Andrew White is known as the Vicar of Baghdad. Um, he's a Brit who served in Iraq for decades. Um, at one time, he's got a vest on because he was the only clergyman within the green zone. Um, and I, I only bring this up just to not, I, again, Christians are going to have different political uh, solutions to different problems. That's clear. But what's interesting about Andrew is Andrew for years um, railed against Saddam Hussein and that regime. And he begged the watching world to come topple it. Um, and then he lived through that happening. Um, and he would actually say, like, he's glad that happened. Um, but what he did realize was that uh, chaos is terrifying. And so he said, as bad as the regime under Saddam was, when there was uh, some periods of just absolute chaos, you didn't know where you stood. There were no rules. Um, it was strictly might equals right. Um, and so he actually, I heard him speak, and he was just saying, hey, think about the idea that chaos is terrifying. And chaos is uh, antithetical to uh, the way of peace and goodness and flourishing. And he said, just maybe pause as we think about good revolutions. I mean, I was reared on Braveheart, okay? <laughs> the first time I saw Braveheart, our soccer team of 16-year-olds <laughs> drove from Atlanta to Savannah for a soccer match, and we watched Braveheart for the first time. And we all got red cards. <laughs> we were so fired up. Um, I get that. And there's something about that that is, you know, it, it seems good. But the Bible says, what does it mean to submit for the sake of mission? To be a little wiser. What does it mean that the meek shall inherit the earth? What's it mean to love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Um, we tend to think of good governments versus bad governments. The biblical teaching is usually between imperfect human government and the beautiful kingdom of God. Do you remember even early in Israel's history when they asked for a king? And the prophet said, are you sure? Because here's what a king is going to do. Even the best of them and certainly the worst of them. Um, and it helps us to have a nuanced, mature view of government and politics and what we can even expect from them um, as we start to sort through these kinds of things. Um, I do think there are at least uh, three ways, uh, three <coughs> ways that the Christian and the church have advocated uh, when governments are totally off base. Um, the first is, I'm just going to hit these quickly because uh, we could spend a long time here. Uh, the first is prophetic critique. So they speak up, and they let the government know when things are wrong and sinful. Moses did this, right? Spoke up to Pharaoh. Hey, let my people go. This is wrong. Um, John the Baptist. Remember, he spoke up. Hey, you're not supposed to be married to this lady. Her daughter danced. Hey, bring me his head. That was the response to prophetic uh, critique. Uh, and just a reminder that submission for the sake of mission doesn't mean silent acceptance of sinfulness, idolatry, or injustice. Sometimes we're called to speak up and speak loudly, and sometimes it might get our head on the plate. That's the teaching of the Bible. The second is an alternative witness. Here's how Bishop N.T. Wright puts this. The Christians have a responsibility to order their lives around the story and symbols of Jesus. We are to live our lives as exemplary citizens, and we must yet let it be known that our loyalty is owed first and foremost to the true Lord of the world. Uh, Christians are to make a nuisance of themselves by setting up a benevolent, sometimes alternative society to the tyrannical one that surrounds them. That's the exile idea. Like, if this is bad, how do we first focus on ourselves to live out holiness and goodness? Um, and that's often been uh, the strategy for Christian civil engagement. Um, the third is civil disobedience. I'm not saying that never takes place. Um, 
What do you think the first example in the scriptures we have is of civil disobedience? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, that's as early as you can get. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's maybe more like, yeah, divine disobedience. Uh, civil di- in the sense of actually like doing something contrary to what the government has told you to do. Andreas? I think it's a midwife. That's it. Yeah, so um, so Israel, the Jews, they're enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh sees all these people getting big. He's like, oh, this is no good. Let's get rid of a lot of the kids. And we're told, or he's told the Hebrew midwives to kill any new sons because they didn't want to fight them. And all of those fantastic godly women refused. They, they disobeyed civilly uh, such that they, um, and they, they did it, you know, in a smart way, but they did not follow that unjust order. They found ways to disobey and to redeem and to save those children, including Moses. Sometimes they had to get creative. Sometimes it had to be a little bit underground, but they didn't obey what was clearly contrary to God's law. Um, and that's usually the line is, okay, if I don't like this, I could probably do it according to submission for the sake of mission. If this is contrary to God's law, we don't go there. Um, There's a higher authority um, that we answer to. So I just think as we think about uh, politics, which the church is horrible about um, actually having places for conversation and even faithful disagreement, I just think a starting point is that government is God's idea to promote order and restrain evil in this present age. Uh, We're to be good citizens but recognize we are ultimately members of the kingdom of God, um, such that we can, we, we participate, and we are part of things. And we're excited when uh, things align with God's way and his will, but sometimes we have to be an alternative witness. Sometimes we have to prophetically speak up. Sometimes we might even be called to uh, civil disobedience. Um, But what he's doing is putting this in its right context, its right place. Here's where it lands. Okay, I spent a lot of time there. I gotta speed up. Or we won't get to the weaker vessel thing. (laughs) I'm in. All right, we're gonna gonna go a little quicker here. Um, Verse 18 uh, says, uh, servants or slaves, Uh, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, a couple things really quickly here um, as we hear this passage. Um, This is one that's difficult to uh, think through without the cultural baggage we bring to it. Um, This is one of those passages that's really difficult to think through apart from the history of it being used in really inappropriate ways. Like, hey, slave, enjoy being a slave. Here's what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult for us to think, even just to hear the word slave and not immediately have an idea that comes to mind. And so I want to say two things just as we kind of approach this passage of what's happening um, and think about this. The first is that here in First Peter, other places in Paul, different groups are addressed and they're giving ethical instruction. I just want to underscore something here. When you read instructions from the first century, some of the places we cringe because we're not sure about what it says, it's actually shocking that these groups were addressed and given the dignity of being instructed in ethics, of being given agency. And they say, actually, when we read um, in Ephesians, children do this. Children weren't talked to. Um, Wives do this. People were not concerned about that. Slaves? 
Could you imagine? Like, that's just not who you try to make a point with. Um, No one worried about anyone except men, and likely wealthy ones. And if you are a wealthy man, here's how to live out um, the Roman ideal. And so every place where we see this, just note that Peter is speaking to and instructing and appealing to groups of people that were just historically ignored entirely as he's going into this. Second, um, it's just the idea that the Roman system of slavery, um, while terrible, like owning people is not something to do. Um, Their system was not what we think of as slavery. Um, We think of kind of what happened in kind of the new world. Um, Their slavery was not racially based. It was not based on ethnicity or skin tone. Um, There were usually two things going on. One is if you got conquered in battle, that's a bad route. You're on the bottom of the slave social ladder. Um, And they're going to just say, hey, you're lucky to be alive. We're going to kind of move forward with you. Um, For other folks, uh, what they, uh, what kind of the the tasks that slaves did um, were a lot of things we would think of as things you go to UGA for. Teaching. and medicine and skilled work. Uh, Most slaves in the Roman Empire, and again, about 30% of the populace was in slavery. Uh, Most had an expectation that at some point in their life they would be freed. It was not a lifetime thing in the same way that we think about it. Some people, um, they looked at their situation and said, hey, we don't know how we're gonna eat. We're gonna go and be in this household for 10 years and we're gonna pay our debts and we're gonna work. Now, again, there were some terrible practices that folks did. Um, but uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, again, he, he was careful, but he just said a lot of the, the way that this worked in the Roman world is just what we might think of as really um, low-level labor today. Um, and some of the control some of these households have is not that much different than some of our bad bosses today and some of those exploitive practices. Um, And again, that's not to say that what happened was good. It's just to say when you think about Roman slavery, it's it's a different system Um, that's at work. Um, And so uh, the other thing that I think when we read this, he's telling them, hey, if you're in a household, be a good slave, be a good servant, is in a Roman household, you have the head of family, the patriarch. And part of what that meant is you had a religious devotion within your home, and everyone in your house is supposed to do what you say in terms of religious devotion. Um, it would be like if, uh, if my son Noah showed up here in an Alabama hat. <laughs> you would be like, no, 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 whoa, that's a Georgia family. What's that kid doing? Uh, that's comical, but like that's how... Uh, Weird it would have been for someone, uh, if you were a strong uh, Roman patriot, Roman leader, um, your servants do what you say. They worship who you worship. They're part of your household faithfulness. What's that? How are you following this crucified one? How are you following? Like, you're already suspect because you're not doing what the patriarch has said. Um, the very next part, wives with unbelieving husbands, you're super suspect at that point. Um, it's not just, I mean, we sometimes think about a household where maybe they're not on the same page spiritually. Uh, Father Bill did work on that. What's that look like in a household? Theirs was like, oh, you're not actually, you're making your patriarch look really bad because you're not participating in the normal ways uh, of the world. So I think when we read this, um, it's really just tricky to get around, okay, what's being said here? Well, he's saying you're probably pretty in danger of being put out on the street or eventually being put to death. Um, You need to think through that as you think through how you're going to interact with your uh, master, your employer, the person who is in charge of you. Um, And just think through, like, there's a pick your battles to this that Peter is advocating. He's thinking through uh, what it means for them uh, long term. And again, I think that while we would love for this to be a little more explosive, maybe a little more revolutionary, um, the idea of freeing slaves is a Christian idea in the history of thought. 
Almost every society has had slavery of some form, some really bad, some maybe a little more like these working situations. It wasn't until the seeds of the gospel bore fruit, and it took a while, longer than it should, but they actually came to the idea, hey, we should do away with this because people are made in the image of God. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that we excuse the way this has been misused, but don't, don't fail to realize it, it is the Christian gospel and the Christian ethic that eventually says, hey, this isn't how we should treat people. Um, and and we, that's not the route we should go. Um, and the appeal they make here is one of those where I think Peter can make this appeal because he will undergo the consequences. Um, he says, think about the example of Jesus. It says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24 uh, and usually if people preach on this, they just grab verse 24 and ignore the rest. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, a bishop of your souls. Again, he's not saying that any of this violence is good, any of this oppression is good. He's saying take heart... Um, that nothing you're going through is unknown to the Lord. Um, think about the salvation you've received through what he has done and realize that the resurrection is on the other side of this. Do you see how that's a little more nuanced, um, a little more mature? He's going, isn't it odd that we have this cruciform ethic that Jesus responds to the evil in the world through love and dying for the evil in the world. And even saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does it mean for the church as the body of Christ um, to begin to follow that pattern of an ethic? That's some of what uh, Peter is advocating here. Um, we're going to keep going, but if you want to see the example of a slave that the gospel gets a hold of, um, we're going to celebrate St. Patrick on Friday. Patrick was uh, captured by Irish raiders made a slave, ended up in a field, and God revealed himself to Patrick. Patrick escaped. And we go, that's awesome. Good job, Patrick. Eventually, Patrick felt God calling him to return to Ireland and proclaim the gospel to his former slave captors. Um, and that's what he does. Um, I only bring that up, and I know we're, we're short on time, to just go... Um, as we think about how to rightly respond to situations, there is usually something bigger and more beautiful that God has in mind. Something like Patrick's story, where he escapes and then comes back in love to proclaim the gospel to those who enslaved him and has a massive uh, fruit such that we're all going to celebrate him on Friday. Um, and we should. He's fantastic. Uh, not just green beer. Green beer's fine. But uh, Patrick is an incredible example of how God has redeemed someone to live out submission for the sake of mission. Amen. Amen. Um, all right, real quick. This is our last one we're going to look at. This is actually a, a in, in some catacombs in Italy. This is a family, uh, a Christian family that's uh, on this fresco in these catacombs. Here's what we get. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be warned without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. I always think that's merely external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women uh, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good. Do not fear anything that is frightening. And then we'll come back and hit verse 7 uh, in a moment. A um, couple things here. This is equally treacherous to walk through. 
we probably have lots of baggage we bring into a conversation like this. Um, the word submission is one of those words that some people hear it and it just, uh, it triggers us. Um, and again, this is a word that's been misused and misapplied. Um, there, there's an old adage that if you're the boss and you have to tell people you're the boss, that's a problem. Or if you're a leader and have to say, I'm the leader. Um, usually whenever this conversation goes bad, it's because someone is over leveraging it instead of having good conversations with one another. Um, what's again interesting here is that Peter's addressing these wives who would not have been addressed in these ethical uh, treatises of the first century. Um, he's actually kind of cutting through this idea that external beauty is where value was found preeminently. And he's talking about these inner uh, virtues that these women could have. In many ways, he's just cutting through um, some of their stereotypes of what it meant to be male and female, and some of the stereotypes that we still see uh, today. Um, his overarching concern is not, let me write a book on marital harmony. His overarching concern is if the wife and the husband do not share the faith, then how does the wife live in that household and how is there the potential eventually, uh, maybe for the husband to be one for the faith? Submission for the sake of mission. Again, this can be horribly misapplied. Um, and uh, here, here's the thing. When I hear the word submission, um, I always go to Ephesians 5, 21. 21, not 22 first, 21 first. Ephesians 5, 21 uh, concludes this section. says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the starting point. Some people ask me, hey, are, is this church, is it complementary and egalitarian? How do you think about relationships with husband and wives? Um, and I like to be a little cheeky. Oh, we think wives just submit 100% to their husbands. <laughs> and we think husbands should submit 100% to their wives. In other words, this is a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Um, it's not a cookie cutter thing. It's got to be talked through uh, within each relationship. How are you wired? What makes sense uh, in, in your household. Um, and here's the thing that's interesting is that uh, women at this time, again, um, they were viewed as less than uh, men, almost less than human, and certainly less than desirable. If you were a Roman household, you said one daughter, that's enough, because they're expensive. You know what happened if your wife gave birth to a second daughter or a third daughter? Expose them. He either sold them into a form of slavery, uh, put them to a prostitution house, many times just put them on the side of the road for the wolves and the animals to consume because that's too expensive. Uh, as you might guess, this is not what was done in the church. In the church, uh, sons and daughters were prized and valued. In the church, discarded daughters were taken in. And you know what this meant over time in the Roman Empire? By just basic math, the ratio of Christian women increased because the pagan women only had one at a time while the Christians actually continued to bring in and birth and value women. And so over time, you actually had a lot of situations where there is some unevenness on this um, because women were being valued in the church. Women were being uh, brought in and not, again, kind of crushed in this way. Um, and so that's part of what Peter is dealing with here. Um, the next one, he actually addresses husbands. And uh, this is one of those verses that's just so fun to teach on. Um, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Couple things on this, and oh, we're, are we out of time? <laughs> you don't get away with that. <laughs> All right, uh, two things really quickly uh, about this passage. Um, uh, <laughs> one is that uh, Peter's ideal here is a household of husbands and wives loving one another 
and communicating and having a spiritually vital household. Um, I think when it says your prayers may not be hindered, it's not utilitarian. It's not like only get along with your wife so your prayer life works. It's just like, hey, we want you on the same page. We want you spiritually caring for one another. We want you honoring Christ in your home. Um, that's, I think, part of what's happening there. The, the term uh, weaker vessel, I think this is actually pretty easy. It sounds inflammatory. I think it's just about physical strength. And I'm just acknowledging um, that as a general rule in most situations, and maybe more so in the first century than now, uh, men tend to be physically stronger than women. Um, now, again, I'm sure there are, I mean, we're across from the UGA track. There are women that are stronger than me at the UGA track and faster and more athletic, right? Uh, right. <laughs> exactly. There are other forms of strength for sure. Um, I think he's thinking a pretty basic, just like how much can you bench press kind of thing. Um, and what he's acknowledging is it's just that there is sexual difference. Um, there, there are some norms. There are some ways that we can tend to be uh, different. And it's not that we should uh, pigeonhole one another into stereotypes. He's just saying, hey, let's think about how this works. Um, and sadly, if you read the secondary literature on this particular verse, um, in many cases, what they bring up is the, the prevalent, accepted reality of domestic abuse in the first century homes. And so he's just saying, like, man, we don't do that, guys. Like, you don't know your strength. Um, and that's not how we treat our wives. Um, I really think there's not much more to it, even though, again, if you just take it out of isolation... <laughs> Um, any of these we can run with, and they're really cultural landmines. Taken as a whole, he's saying whether it's in politics, if you're not in charge, whether it's because you're a servant, so you're not in charge, whether you're a wife, so you're not in charge, or husbands, maybe if you even are in charge. There's submission for the sake of mission if you're not in charge. And if you are in charge, there's actually being a good steward of what leadership means and caring and loving the other person.